Hello everybody, I'm Matt and welcome to another episode of Geeks Crossing. Six months, actually a little more than that now, has passed since my first ever solo episode on this podcast, where I went over my 10 favorite cartoons of the 2010s. Some of my views on those shows have definitely changed since then, but that's a topic for another day. I wondered about it, but I never took the idea of a follow-up episode very seriously. That is, until now. You're listening to the sequel of my original countdown, or I guess technically a prequel. This list was surprisingly hard to make. I grew up in the 2000s, so I figured this would be a piece of cake, but I was stunned to find out how many of my favorite cartoons from the period actually premiered in the 90s, drastically shrinking my list since well, I can't count those as 2000s cartoons. Just as with my 2010s list, I go by premiere date when it comes to what decade a show calls home. Maybe one day I'll make a third and final installment of this series, Top 10 Cartoons of the 90s. But I digress. It was hard, but I did manage to group together what are, in my view, the 10 absolute best cartoons of the 2000s. And keep in mind, as someone who grew up in the 2000s, I forced myself to only consider cartoons that I would still go back, watch, and enjoy today. None of those shows made for very young children that I watched as a young lad. So if you were hoping to see Wow Wow Wubsy or the Backyardigans on here, I'm afraid you're out of luck. That said, let's start off our list, as usual, with some honorable mentions. Beginning, we have Back at the Barnyard and the Penguins of Madagascar, which aired in 2007 and 2009, respectively, both on Nickelodeon. Back in the Barnyard was a spin-off based on Nickelodeon's original movie Barnyard, while Penguins of Madagascar was a spin-off of the famous Madagascar movies. Both are harmless, decent cartoons. Back at the Barnyard, in particular, is receiving a resurgence in meme culture due to its surprisingly witty and goofy comedy. Uh, but one look at either of these shows should tell you why they're not any higher. Needless to say, the CGI animation has definitely not aged tremendously well. <laughs> Next up is Super Jail, which aired on Adult Swim beginning in 2008. As the title would lead you to believe, the show centers around a massive prison, its warden, and its inhabitants. The show is absolutely bizarre and feels like an acid trip every time you watch it. I've never been a huge Adult Swim guy myself, but I did watch this show and enjoy many episodes of it. I especially like the one where the, the prisoners bond with the, the little girl who's like sick, and the self-absorbed warden can't take the fact that he's not the center of attention. It's a very wholesome and actually very depressing and wholesome. <laughs> And silly plot. Of course, the show loses points for me due to its eye-rollingly gratuitous amount of spontaneous sex and violence that many adult animations feel are an absolute requirement, seemingly just because they can get away with it. I went in-depth on that point in my episode on the future of adult animation. But when characters are constantly bleeding and realistically exploding every five seconds, the quality of the show goes down a bit for me. Eh, that's just a personal preference, I suppose. Still, I guess there is something to be said of the show's originality. Next, we have Class of 3000, which aired on Cartoon Network beginning in 2006 and follows the adventures of a music class taught by Andre 3000's character. This is my all-time favorite show for a while when I was growing up, but after a bit, I started to wonder if I imagined the whole thing. I've been meaning to re-watch it for years now. I feel like this show is worth mentioning because out of all of Cartoon Network's mid-2000s lineup, this show always seems to get the most ignored, so shout-out to Class of 3000. We're almost at the proper list. My penultimate honorable mention goes to The Boondocks. I've only caught a few episodes of this show thanks to Eric. Shout out to my boy Eric. And what I've seen was really funny stuff. 
the way it plays around with its characters, comes up with stories from stupid to profound, <laughs> is really neat. Still, I will say the show comes across as condescending and politically driven at times. A problem absolutely not unique to the boondocks. I find adult animation in general has this problem, and it can be a little bit soapboxy. I'm just really taking adult animation to school today, aren't I? <laughs> but anyway, solid show. It's on HBO Max. If you watch it, you'll almost certainly have a great time, but just keep in mind it does have an agenda to sell you. Whatever. Much like my other top ten lists, my final honorable mention goes to the cartoon that came the closest to making it on this actual list. In this case, I have Camp Laszlo. Much like Class of 3000, this 2005 cartoon simply wasn't up to the standards of some of its competitors, in my opinion. But despite its lacking quality, and its somewhat tired, trite sense of humor, Camp Laszlo is a great cartoon. Its 50s campground aesthetic, the differing personalities of the campers, and the stupidity of pettiness of Scoutmaster Lumpus, who quite possibly makes the whole show. This cartoon is definitely worth remembering, and earns itself the honorary number 11 spot on this list. There are also many critically acclaimed animated series that I have simply never seen or have seen very little of, such as Samurai Jack, Star Wars The Clone Wars, The Venture Brothers, and Teen Titans. I feel if I were to see any of these, my list would probably change, so they definitely deserve shoutouts. With that out of the way, though, let's begin my list with the number 10 spot, which I have given to Danny Phantom. This show aired on Nickelodeon starting in 2004 and followed the adventures of Danny Fenton. He was just 14 when his parents built the very strange machine. I'm, I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. But long story short, due to an experiment mishap, Danny ends up with the ability to turn into a ghost and keeps his town of Amity Park safe from invaders from the ghost dimension, all while navigating the life of a typical American teenager. Unlike Danny's ghost body, this show was solid. See what I did there? Huh. The characters were likable, <laughs> the most important ones being Danny's two closest friends, the nerdy, gadget-loving Tucker and the sarcastic goth girl Sam. The stories usually revolved around a Ghost of the Day attack, which Danny and his friends would have to stop. There's really nothing else to note, and that's what keeps Danny Phantom at number 10 for me. I really liked it, but it's not like it was a tremendous cartoon that blew me away and proved absolutely 100% unforgettable. Plus, it kind of got overshadowed by Butch Hartman's other behemoth of a cartoon. And speaking of, we reach number 9, Fairly Odd Parents. It would be something of a cultural sin to have a list like this and not include one of the most iconic animated shows to come out of the 2000s. Starting on Nickelodeon in 2001, this cartoon followed the exploits of Timmy, an average kid who no one understands. Mom and Dad and Ricky always giving him commands. All right. Last time I do that, I promise. Butch Hartman really knows how to pick a catchy tune for his shows. Regardless, the semi-loser Timmy is gifted godparents from the fairy world. Sort of like Cinderella's fairy godmother, except they're always with him, and they can make his every wish come true. Shenanigans ensue each episode. Timmy usually makes some wish to make his life better, and it almost always goes totally awry. And he learns a lesson at the end. This cartoon really had it all. Silly slapstick, a range of hilarious characters from the Schwarzenegger powder, the Jorgen von Strangle, who ruled over Fairy World and somewhat acted as Cosmo and Wanda's boss, to Timmy's paranoid freakish teacher, Denzel Crocker. It also had some pretty awesome TV movies as well. I mean, School's Out the Musical, Abracatastrophe, Channel Chasers, 
and of course, the Jimmy and Timmy Power Hour, which saw Timmy Turner cross over into the universe of fellow Nicktoon Jimmy Neutron. However, while Fairly Odd Parents has more pros than Danny Phantom, it also has more cons. As the 2000s went on, I started to find the show obnoxious at best and boring at worst, and I stopped watching not long after the infamous decision to introduce Poof, Cosmo and Wanda's baby, though for me personally, it didn't really have a huge effect on why I stopped watching it. Fairly Odd Parent fans know that this was only the beginning, and the show experienced a slow, pathetic march to death throughout the entire 2010s, introducing unlikable characters, dumbing down the pre-existing characters, and focusing far too much time on god-awful live-action adaptations. Fairly Odd Parents finally received mercy when Nickelodeon did not renew it in 2017, and it was able to die in peace. Now, when's that going to happen to SpongeBob? <laughs> uh, to be honest, I had trouble deciding whether to put Fairly Odd Parents ahead of Danny Phantom, and I'd be more than willing to hear a case that Danny Phantom is better. Nevertheless, the iconic fairy-based show is a cultural staple, and its high-quality TV movies and greater quantity of iconic characters provide it the number 9 spot on this list. Moving away from Nickelodeon, we reach my number 8 spot, The Marvelous Misadventures of Flapjack. This show went through many spots on this list while I drafted the script, but I've ultimately chosen to settle it at number 8 for reasons I'll get to. The series follows a young boy, Flapjack, and his old pirate friend, Captain Knuckles, who live in the mouth of a whale, Flapjack's adopted mother, Bubby. They usually get into various hijinks around the town of Stormalong Harbor, and both have a craving for candy that's the main reason behind the series-spanning goal of locating the legendary Candied Island. It doesn't get more stylized or creative than Flapjack, with an entire aesthetic matching the dark underbelly of Victorian England, prim and proper ladies, stylized filthy peasants, a soundtrack using accordions and clarinets, muck and gloom abound. The characters are purposefully hideous, from Lolly Poop Deck to Dr. Barber to Peppermint Larry and the Doc Hag, all are portrayed with exaggerated ugly features. This brings me to the show's conclusion. This brings me to the nature of the show was really cool, but it also makes the series creepy and surreal. Flapjack makes heavy use of gross-out humor and even jump scares at times, and the whole environment, the characters, the dialogue, the aesthetic, it all makes you feel kind of uneasy. A lot of people love that feeling when they watch Flapjack, and I did too, but the cartoon could just be a little too weird for me at times. Still, that doesn't give the show's positive attributes much credit. The writing is funny, the voice acting is on point, Brian Doyle Murray, who voices Captain Knuckles, honestly might be one of my favorite voice actors of all time. His gravelly tone is so unmatched. And he also provided the voice for the Flying Dutchman on SpongeBob SquarePants. Fun fact, he's also Bill Murray's older brother. But I digress. As creepy and weird as it may be, The Marvelous Misadventures of Flapjack is also completely one of a kind, and provided stepping stones for such figures as Pendleton Ward, J.C. Quintel, and Alex Hirsch, who would go on to make Adventure Time, Regular Show, and Gravity Falls, respectively. Let's head back to Nickelodeon for my number 7 spot, which I've actually already mentioned on this list. Jimmy Neutron, or more specifically, The Adventures of Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius. I'm not sure what the common consensus is on this show in comparison to Fairly Odd Parents. The two are compared an awful lot, probably due to their crossover specials. But for me, Jimmy Neutron is the superior show. For one, it never suffered through season after season of horrible quality, introducing unlikable stupid characters, Instead, it packed all that stuff into its short-lived spin-off, Planet Sheen, which can be judged as its own show. I also personally find Jimmy a lot nicer of a character than Timmy. Like, Timmy's kind of a jerk, I feel like. I don't know. <laughs> he's, he's just such a tool running around 
Jimmy's like, you know, he's a smart, nerdy kid, but you kind of, you know, you can root for him a little easier. I don't know, that was just me. Jimmy Neutron's a product of the early to mid-2000s that stayed in the early to mid-2000s, unlike Fairly Odd Parents, and the show is much better for it. Jimmy Neutron follows the adventures of, well, Jimmy Neutron, a super smart boy wonder who builds inventions and performs experiments in a secret laboratory underneath his backyard. If that sounds like Dexter's Lab, well, it does kind of play out like Dexter's Lab. Just dumb down the kid's parents, replace the goofy sister with two goofy best friends, make the protagonist a little more sociable, and give the whole thing a sort of 1950s retro aesthetic. That's why the town is called Retroville, after all. And you turn Dexter's Lab into Jimmy Neutron. The show was notable as one of the very first CGI animated series of all time. Sure, its animation is a bit dated as a result, but I don't know if it's because it's older or more primitive, but I don't find the animation of Jimmy Neutron to look as cringy as the animation in the Penguins of Madagascar. Everything in Jimmy Neutron has personality and style, maybe helped by the retro vibe I mentioned earlier. And, like Back at the Barnyard, this show also started with a movie, in this case an Oscar-nominated movie, so I guess Jimmy Neutron gets some brownie points for that. Every episode relies on some sci-fi tropes, Robots, aliens, monsters, and the like. And the show handles it well. The characters are likable and fun. Retroville itself has a lot of personality. The only way I can really think to fault Jimmy Neutron is it is fairly formulaic. Still being a bit formulaic is hardly the worst crime an animated series can commit. There's a reason this is one of the best-remembered Nicktoons, and that's because Jimmy Neutron is fun, creative, boldly animated, and probably inspired a generation of chemistry and physics nerds. Moving on to number six, we reach a familiar series for fans of Geeks Crossing, Clone High, which began in 2002 on MTV. The show only aired for 13 episodes, which makes it harder to judge critically and why I can't bring myself to put it any higher on this list. It is also true that some of its references are a bit, shall we say, dated. Does anyone even know who Ashley Angel is anymore? Does anyone even know what O-Town is anymore? But with those glaring flaws aside, Clone High is a terrific cartoon, as discussed in our detailed episode about it, which you should totally go listen to if you haven't already. Clone High follows high school students cloned from the DNA of famous historical figures as they go about their daily angst-filled teenage lives and are watched meticulously by the insane Principal Scudworth and his robot butler, Mr. Butlertron. Clone High is basically a giant spoof of melodramatic young adult series of the time, such as Dawson's Creek, with exaggerated dialogue during moments of tension and sadness, and an overarching love triangle that takes up a huge chunk of the show's attention. This is also somewhat of a drawback, as Abe, the main character, is pretty much always talking about his love life for every single line of dialogue, but as a whole, the show pulls off its parody nature well. And that's not even mentioning how funny it is on its own. The writing is brilliant penned by Christopher Miller and Phil Lord before they went on to create 21 Jump Street, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, The Lego Movie, and most recently Into the Spider-Verse. The characters are funny and charming, and the premise itself is incredibly creative. I suppose I have found many side characters underutilized, as the show basically revolves around its small core cast members. But still, these characters are likable and funny enough to carry the show, so it's okay. Especially JFK! Though Clone High is dragged down a bit by its relatively small nature, small cast, tiny episode count, and slightly dated references, it's still creative, charming, and laugh-out-loud hilarious, enough to merit itself one of the best cartoons of the decade, in my opinion. We have arrived at the halfway point, with my number five pick being Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends. 
Created by the sublime Craig McCracken and first aired in 2004 on Cartoon Network, this cartoon follows the adventures of a sort of adoption home for imaginary friends when their child creators outgrow them. Craig McCracken was well known at the time for being the creator of the Powerpuff Girls, and since then he's developed Wander Over Yonder, which made my top 10 best cartoons of the 2010s list. Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends was big enough to earn itself a parade in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, and it's not hard to see why. There's so much character and creativity packed into this bizarre show, it truly was a privilege to get to grow up with it. I recently rewatched a little bit of Foster's, and I must say I, I don't think the animation has aged terribly well. But that's not to say the art style isn't terrific, it's, it absolutely is. The colors of the various funhouse-style rooms in the home itself, and the different angles, sizes, shapes, color palettes, and designs for each individual imaginary friend. It really does feel like they were designed by the individual minds of young children. Foster's is great for taking its concept and really running with it. Its characters are fun and goofy, as much as you'd expect imaginary friends to be. And the humans, especially Mac, one of the series' main leads, and Frankie, the overworked cleaning lady, are often casted as the more reasonable personalities in a sea of colorful, wacky, imaginary friend antics. And the friends themselves are incredibly dynamic and entertaining as well. You've got Wilt, the overly apologetic giant. Eduardo, a giant bull creature who's also a total scaredy-cat. Coco, a mysterious tropical bird creature that only says, Coco! and Harriman, the no-nonsense headmaster of Foster's, who also happens to be a giant bunny. This is in addition to the dozens of other recurring imaginary friends, all of whom have different personalities themselves. I neglect to mention Blue, the protagonist of the show. He's a jerk, <laughs> thinks he's too cool for school, and though he does have a heart of gold, his inane scheming and lack of empathy can hurt the show sometimes. Kind of like what I said about Timmy Turner as a sort of mean protagonist, but even worse. Still, with such a creative concept, fun characters, colorful art, and some great specials under its belt, namely Goodwill Hunting, come on, all Foster's fans were thinking it, the joy you'll get from watching Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends is far more than imaginary. Gosh, even I cringed saying that. We're now entering the final four. Four truly amazing cartoons that would probably wind up somewhere on a list of my top ten favorite cartoons of all time. It was incredibly hard for me to choose between third place and fourth place, especially on this list. But in the end, I allowed third place to just barely beat out the show that got fourth. And in fourth place, that show is Chowder. Of all the shows remaining on this list, Chowder may not be the wittiest, but it's probably the most laugh-out-loud goofy. Chowder follows the exploits of the titular character who works as a cooking apprentice in the catering company of Chef Mung Dal. He gets in all sorts of shenanigans with Mung, along with Mung's grouchy wife Truffles, and his mistreated employee Schnitzel, a variety of other goofy characters, from the insecure salesman Gaspacho, whose voice actor Dana Snyder is absolutely perfect for the role, to Mung's rival chef Endive also appear. In addition to Snyder, the show also has some other pretty great voice talent, including Mindy Sterling as Endive and Howard Schultz as Mung, who's probably my favorite character. He tries to play the straight man, but that ends up usually becoming schnitzel, as Mung will just as easily get himself amped up and get into stupid shenanigans all on his own. Again, this show is wildly entertaining, born from the mind of C.H. Greenblatt, who also did Harvey Beaks, I definitely have to talk about that show more in depth one day, and is slated to do a Hanna-Barbera original show for HBO Max. Meaning, yes, he pretty much does one show per decade. <laughs> but it's always a showstopper. The art and animation of Chowder is also very unique. Something I always noticed as a kid was that the designs and patterns on the clothes of the characters never move with the characters themselves. Which I always thought was bizarre, yet 
pretty cool effect. In addition to delightful characters and cool animation effects, though, as I've already said, Chowder's the master of hilarity. The zany world and zany characters within it lend themselves so easily to wild antics. The show is also chock full of food puns, every character is named after a food, and the various dishes that Mung is responsible for teaching Chowder how to cook are typically very punny as well. Something I didn't know about Chowder is something I discovered while researching for this list. I remembered it coming to a natural close. I even remembered the finale when they're all adults. But apparently it was actually cancelled by Cartoon Network. In their view, Chowder wasn't matching their ideal demographic of older boys, and CN wanted to experiment with shows like Destroy, Build, Destroy instead. Putting aside the obvious joke that Destroy, Build, Destroy ended up absolutely bombing, <laughs> while Chowder has enjoyed a continued following, this is particularly interesting to me because when I think of Cartoon Network nowadays, I do see it as the channel geared more towards teenagers than actual children. With its 2010s lineup of Adventure Time, Regular Show, The Amazing World of Gumball, We Bear Bears, and Steven Universe especially, containing tons of mature moments and themes. So maybe the cancellation of Chowder came during a time where Cartoon Network was really starting to become more mature. Then again, the network is also known for its ratings giant, Teen Titans Go, and the bizarre fever dream that is Total Drama-Rama, shows that lose their flavor once your age is double digits. So who's to say what the heck Cartoon Network is thinking? <laughs> Moving past Chowder, we reached the show that just barely beats it for me. My number three spot, Phineas and Ferb. Seeing as I did an entire episode on Phineas and Ferb, in fact it was my very first Renaissance mat, I'll try not to repeat myself too much. The show aired in 2007 on Disney Channel and quickly became one of the greatest cartoons of the late 2000s. The show follows two stepbrothers, Phineas and Ferb, and their neighborhood friends, as they build some crazy invention, machine, concoction, or device on a summer day. Their sister, Candace, tries to get their mom to notice said crazy invention, machine, concoction, or device, while their pet, Perry the Platypus, secretly escapes to fight the evil Dr. Doofenshmirtz, who will be working on his own completely unique invention, machine, concoction, or device. He calls them innators, to try and take over the tri-state area or get revenge on a petty foe. Typically, as Perry defeats Doofenshmirtz, either his innator or the ensuing battle will cause Phineas and Ferb's creation to get destroyed or disappear or something, usually right before Candace can present it to their mom. Throw in a song somewhere along the way and roll credits. That's pretty much every single episode of Phineas and Ferb, described in less than a minute. So what could possibly grant this incredibly formulaic show a spot on this list? Simply put, the writers really know how to make each episode pop. By making the characters charming and likable, by introducing the occasional new or returning character into the mix, by implementing songs that have no right to be as catchy as they are, and by relying on a solid sense of humor, each episode of Phineas and Ferb, despite being more or less the same basic plot every time, feels fresh and fun. Doofenshmirtz, for example, will usually have a backstory that's either exaggeratedly tragic, like being forced to stand outside his house as a lawn known for months, or completely petty, like hearing his neighbor's dog bark while he's trying to sleep. As the series goes on, he becomes more pathetic than evil and buddies up with his arch-nemesis Perry the Platypus more frequently. As I mentioned in my Renaissance Matt episode on Phineas and Ferb, Doof was always my favorite character. That's not to say the hijinks that Phineas and Ferb themselves get into aren't fun. They are, especially once their group of friends grows to include Isabella, the girl next door with a huge crush on Phineas, and Buford and Baljeet, the neighborhood bully and the neighborhood nerd. This core group of five rounds out the relative lack of personality from Phineas and Ferb and can create some really fun antics. 
And then the third leg of the tripod, Candace and her subplot, usually revolves around her trying to get her brothers busted, or trying to resist the urge to get them busted. Often they'll include her best friend Stacy and her crush later turned boyfriend Jeremy. I didn't realize this until rewatching, but Candace as a whole is a really funny character, portrayed perfectly by Ashley Tisdale as a manic, incredibly determined force to be reckoned with. The family's mom is also usually featured in Candace's subplot, sort of as the straight woman character who believes her daughter is slightly insane, since she's never made it home to see Phineas and Ferb's inventions in time. I would be remiss if I didn't discuss the music, which is a different genre almost every single time and contains some real bangers. The show also got a phenomenal TV movie, Across the Second Dimension, which broke past the show's usual formula. Phineas and Ferb run into Doofenshmirtz, Perry's cover gets blown, etc. Last year, Phineas and Ferb also got a Disney Plus original movie, Candace Against the Universe, which was pretty mediocre. <laughs> Though it did have the occasional catchy song, as to be expected. All in all, Phineas and Ferb is really underrated by Disney. My brother and I both get memes and teasers and clips and all that kind of stuff from Disney Channel every so often across social media, and everything where they're running these days seems like it's trying to replicate Gravity Falls, right? Mysterious mysteries everywhere that need to be solved, right? I'm thinking of the Owl House and, and um, Amphibia, like, you know, even DuckTales to an extent. But I think if you, if you can find that sweet spot, an incredibly formulaic show that takes pride in its repetitiveness by spicing each episode up with great humor, catchy songs, and likable characters then that can be just as satisfying, if not more so sometimes, than having to glue your eyes to the screen the entire episode to follow a giant easter egg hunt. I think this next spot on my list is going to surprise some people, but my number two pick is Total Drama Island. First of all, if you told me that Phineas and Ferb and Total Drama Island premiered the same year, I'd consider that absolutely insane. But I can already hear you asking, How is Total Drama better than Chowder? Better than Phineas and Ferb? Better than insert honorable mention here! Look, that's fair. You know, everyone has their own opinions. And, and Total Drama Island isn't going to blow you away with a complicated supernatural story arc or gut-busting laugh-out-loud humor or beautiful, fluid animation. But I actually consider it one of the most creative, semi-realistic shows on this list. Total Drama, which began with Total Drama Island in 2007, or 2008, I guess, depending on where you live, but I am judging it for the whole series, not just Island. It follows a fictional reality TV show in which contestants compete for a $100,000 prize in season one and a million dollar prize in every season after. As is the case with Phineas and Ferb, this is not the first time I've talked about Total Drama on this podcast. I did an episode last year with Eric where we talked about the whole show. Heck, uh, this month I discussed the Total Drama fan project. And as of the time of me recording this, that I, I did that yesterday. <laughs> So at the risk of sounding redundant, I'll quickly go through my favorite parts of the show. Total Drama introduced a cast of teenage stereotypes, and a great joy of Total Drama is watching all these personalities interact and clash. From the loner goth Gwen, the uptight Courtney, the punk rebel Duncan, the clumsy jock Tyler, the sarcastic know-it-all Noah, the chill surfer girl Bridget, everybody's friend Owen, and too many others to list here. Each character, at least among the first generation, has a developed, unique persona, many times a story arc to go with it. Choosing your favorite characters and rooting for them to make it further is an experience that no other cartoon really provides. Sure, you can have your favorite characters, but for the most part, it's not like Mung Doll or Jimmy Neutron are going anywhere. 
Not so in Total Drama. There's a real risk that your favorite won't last another day. It provides a realistic sense of edge. Fresh TV was the bomb.com when it came to producing teen drama shows in the late 2000s. 16 reminded viewers of hanging out at the mall, while Stoked portrayed the lives of beach bum teens. So it only makes sense that Total Drama would emulate summer camp with a delightful Survivor parody addition to really spice things up. Though the animation is choppy, joining the ranks of its sibling shows 16 and Stoke, I really like the character models and art style of Total Drama as well. I believe the lead character designer came out a while ago and confessed he took much of his inspiration from the characters of Clone High. And frankly, you can kind of see it, especially early on. However, I can't imagine the cast of Total Drama looking any other way. The sharp, angular, edgy faces and body parts on most of the characters perfectly encapsulate the treacherous spirit of the game. And the rounder, less edgy characters, such as Owen, are often the more friendly, innocent contestants. I'm definitely reading too much into this. <laughs> Still, the show's not without its glaring flaws. Many of the elimination ceremonies in Season 1 don't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, for example, eliminating Tyler, who tried and failed during the Face Your Fear challenge, instead of Courtney, who refused to even try. Or all the times the characters knew how malicious Heather was, but never voted for her. <laughs> Randomly choosing contestants like Beth and Jeff, who were far more innocent. I went through a lot of this in my full Total Drama episode with Eric, so again, definitely go give that a watch. <laughs> or a listen, at least, if you haven't already. And yes, Elephant in the Room, unlike Chowder or Phineas and Ferb, Total Drama experienced massive seasonal rot. After Island, they stumbled with action, came back to deliver a powerful world tour, and I would argue, remained mediocre at best afterwards. Until the Redonculus race, at least, but again, that's not really a typical Total Drama season. With later seasons ranging from mediocre to outright terrible, animation that's never anything to write home about, and a lack of any enthralling, overarching mystery plot or fantastic sense of humor, I'm sure many of you are scratching your heads wondering, how did Total Drama possibly best the other shows that came earlier? And clinching second place on my favorite cartoons of an entire decade? Well, other than maybe Spongebob, I don't think there's a cartoon that's had as big an impact on my life as the Total Drama series. I adore this show. And for the most part, I do feel it holds up nicely. Heck, I used to write my own seasons of Total Drama and shows like Total Drama back in the day. My guilty secret is that this show is my firmest bridge into the world of fanfiction writing. The enormous impact of the show on my own love of animation and creative writing, as well as the show's unique premise, lovable characters, and interesting story arcs, cement Total Drama as my second favorite cartoon of the 2000s. Nine cartoons have come and gone. Danny Phantom, Fairly Odd Parents, Flapjack, Jimmy Neutron, Clone High, Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends, Chowder, Phineas and Ferb, Total Drama. In my opinion, these are the greatest Western cartoons that I have ever had the pleasure of watching in the 2000s. What show could possibly best them? Well, unlike all nine of the other shows, I didn't grow up watching my number one pick. In fact, I didn't actually see this cartoon until November 2019. So ironically, my favorite cartoon of the 2000s is one that I didn't watch until the very, very end of the 2010s. In fact, I had originally planned to style this list as a top 10 cartoons from my childhood, so that I could include shows like Spongebob that aired in the 90s. But not only would this have opened the door to figuring out how to separate the shows that can still be enjoyed today versus true children's shows, I bring you back to that Wow Wow Wubsy and Backyardigans example from earlier, but it also would have prevented me from talking about Avatar The Last Airbender. 
Yeah, you guys probably could have seen this one coming. <laughs> Avatar has seen a huge resurface in popularity after it was added to Netflix in summer 2020, when many people had nothing better to do, for obvious reasons. But, hipster that I am, I'm usually quick to point out I got super into it half a year earlier, when Keith and Nick sat me down and showed me what I had been missing all these years. So, gigantic props to them, because if it wasn't for their encouragement, well, Total Drama would probably be my number one spot on this list. <laughs> Avatar The Last Airbender, which first aired on Nickelodeon in 2005, sees a world with five types of people. Non-benders, normal folks like you and me, and airbenders, waterbenders, earthbenders, and firebenders, who have the ability to control their namesake element. You know where it goes from here? Everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. The firebenders are at war with the waterbenders and earthbenders, and have wiped out all the airbenders. That is, all except one. Aang, who's also the Avatar, the only person who can bend all four elements instead of just one. However, he's just a child, and he must train his way to his true, full potential to defeat the Fire Lord, the leader of the Fire Nation. Traveling the world, meeting friends, fighting evil, and singing songs. Well, okay, maybe just one song. This show truly has it all. A massive overarching story, one that keeps you completely invested, and yet one that still leaves room for the occasional character-driven filler episodes. Oh, and the, the characters! Each one that the show picks up as a main or supporting figure is so richly developed, so thoroughly jam-packed with fascinating things to do or say, that to this day, despite this being my favorite cartoon of the 2000s, and easily one of my favorite cartoons of all time, if not my favorite, I still can't pick my favorite character. I can't even narrow it down to two or three. Aang, Sokka, Toph, Zuko, Iroh. How could I be expected to choose? If you ask me, that's one of the best problems a work of media can have. Underrated, but also worth pointing out, is the show's soundtrack. I'm not extremely musically knowledgeable, so pardon me for not knowing which instruments are used, but the orchestral background music, which sounds heavily Asian-inspired, provide melodies ranging from haunting to lighthearted to absolutely beautiful. None so much as the instrumental titled Peace, the recurring theme that ends the series. For me, Avatar was also a show that was just hard to stop watching. Every time I'd finish one of the show's three seasons, or book as they market them, I'd want to keep going. Each time I'd see those words, the end, during the series finale, I'd feel bittersweet. I'd want to go on the adventure all over again. I've already rewatched the show fully to show my brothers, who had also never seen it, and I could easily foresee myself doing it again sometime in the near future. And keep in mind, this is a cartoon I first saw a little over a year ago. I'm also always mildly amused that this show aired on Nickelodeon, a network that is now a total laughingstock, and yet its gem, Avatar The Last Airbender, completely blows the recent successes of Cartoon Network out of the water. Adventure Time, Regular Show, Steven Universe, none of them hold a candle to Avatar, at least for me. I won't say too much other than that, because ultimately I think I do want to make a top 10 or top 20 of my favorite cartoons of all time to see where my lists stack up against each other and to see how my mind has changed since last July. But seriously, if you haven't watched Avatar The Last Airbender, I highly, highly encourage you to do so. It is legitimately a work of art. That being said, this has been another episode of Geeks Crossing. What are your favorite cartoons from the 2000s? Did I leave any of your favorites out? Let me know in the Discord. Link is in the description of this episode, as always. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, at Geeks Crossing, and please continue to listen to us on Anchor, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're hearing my voice right now. I'm Matt, and thank you very much for listening.